Hey, Jacob's Well Online. This is Joshua Scoyne, student pastor here at Jacob's Well. Uh, this week, we're on week seven of our series seven, looking at the letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. This week, we're looking at the church of Laodicea that Jesus called the lukewarm church and a call to all of us to surrender our lives to him. Hope you enjoy the podcast. Well, hey, everybody. Uh, Happy Thanksgiving, first of all. And I wanted to say it's really good to see that you all survived the holiday because that can sometimes be a little bit crazy. Did anybody else uh, get themselves so in pain from all the food that they stuffed in their stomachs that they're still kind of feeling it right now? Anybody else in this room? Just me? Cool. Uh, And then, so you go through Thanksgiving, and sometimes you've got just the one holiday. In my family, you have the two, so you eat an entire meal, and you eat as much as you physically can fit in your body on Thursday. Then you go on Friday, and you think to yourself, that would be a really bad choice. I shouldn't do that two days in a row. And then they set out the food, and then you do the same thing over again. So you got Thanksgiving, and then there's Black Friday, Right? And some of you guys are crazy enough to go out there, and you're basically walking into a war zone. So the fact that you've made it here this weekend is awesome. So congratulations. You should be proud of yourselves for that. It's kind of exciting. Um, hey, I am extremely excited to be here right now to give this message, to talk about uh, where we're at at the end of this series of seven, because I've actually had the opportunity to teach on this passage a lot, multiple times. It's from one of my favorite passages in the scriptures, and I have taught on it a lot. I have read books on this subject. I have listened to uh, conference speakers talk about this topic. And so when I first started coming to preparing for it, I was like, oh, I've done this before. This is going to be easy. I'm going to take one of the old outlines, make a couple of changes. And then I made a mistake slash a really good thing happened. And I decided to to do some more studying and decided to look into this and dig in. And lo and behold, I came across a whole ton of information that completely changed my perspective on what we're about to speak on. And something was pointed out to me about this is this idea that you and I, we're never supposed to stop learning. We're never supposed to get to this point where we think we've reached the pinnacle, where we think that we've got it all figured out. The beautiful thing about the Bible and the way that God designed it is is on your first pass through, yeah, you're going to pick some stuff up, you're going to get an overall picture, but it's designed for us to go back to time and time again. And over the years, as we spend time in it and as we meditate on it, as we look at the riches that are there, God unveils stuff. He shows us things. So the lesson that I learned this week, and just to hopefully be an encouragement to all of us, is let's never think that we've got it all figured out, that we've seen every angle. The beautiful thing is there are riches in the Bible that God wants to uncover, and it's only through time with him that that happens. So this happened to me this week, and it forced me to relook at this passage, and I'm excited to share with you the things that I found for myself. So this is the final week of this series called Seven. We've been in the book of Revelation, and at the beginning of that book, there's these letters to the seven churches, right? John is having this vision, and Jesus is telling him these messages to these seven churches that are kind of in the ancient world. Think of like modern-day Turkey. And there's these messages that is important for each of these churches at their point in history and in their context. But the beautiful thing is that the, the message and what he's trying to get across is so much more than just for them, but it relates to us. 2,000 years later, these things are going to hit us uh, square in the face. There's a formula that we've seen over the last seven weeks. As we go through each letter, we've seen this over and over again. It starts off with a revelation about Jesus, where he reveals something to his people, something about his character. Then we get a word of correction, a word of warning, a word of encouragement to kind of pick them up after those last two, 
a promise of reward to those who overcome. This is a major theme in this book, this idea that God is, is less concerned about how we start our faith as he is about how we finish and how we persevere and how we overcome through the hard times. And finally, it ends with an admonition to listen, to hear what the Spirit is saying. But in this final letter, the seventh letter, it has one glaring exception. Laodicea is the only church that doesn't get a word of encouragement. There's nothing positive. There's nothing praiseworthy about them. And I think we're going to find that the church in Laodicea is not so different from us. It's not so different from the church of America. The temptations that they gave into will probably hit close to home. They, they certainly do for me. So let's, let's pray and let's just ask God to open up our hearts. Help us to see this thing with fresh eyes. Jesus, Lord, I thank you for these letters that you gave to your people and that are so relevant to us today. Lord, I pray for courage right now for all of us in this room, that we would be honest with ourselves, that we would look in the mirror and and give an honest assessment of those areas in our life where maybe we've compromised, where maybe we've given in, where maybe we've been too comfortable with our sin. Lord, I pray that you would help us to hear what you have to say to us and to be people that are brave enough to trust you and to change. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so this letter is to the church in a city called Laodicea, and we're just going to dive right into this. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot, I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. First of all, whoa. It's such an intense thing to read from the mouth of Jesus. Because if you think about it, this is the same Jesus who teaches us to care for the poor to heal the sick, to set captives free. This is the same Jesus that is so full of mercy and love and compassion. But here he is saying to these people, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. And that makes me ask the question, what happened? What could have possibly been going on in the city of Laodicea to bring them to this point? Well, there's two interpretations of this passage I wanted to show you. The first one is going to be familiar to many of us. The first one is the one that I had heard time and time again, the one I have spoken on, the one I've seen at conferences. Um, and, And it goes something like this. When he says that you're not hot and you're not cold, the hot would be this idea that to be hot is to be on fire for Jesus, to be sold out, to be all in on your faith. And then to be cold is basically someone who doesn't believe in God, okay? They don't have any relationship with him. Maybe they're against him. And he's saying that for them to be lukewarm puts them between these two ends. You're either all in or you're all out. And then he's saying, Laodicea, you're somewhere in the middle. And it's this idea that I would rather you be fully in and fully committed or completely against me than to be somewhere in the middle. And this is the way I've heard this taught time and time again, over and over again. And I think that this idea has some really good validity. We've actually seen this over and over again in the Gospels, that Jesus would rather spend all of his time with lost people who are honest with themselves than spend even three minutes with a religious hypocrite. 
right? If you think about it, the best examples is Jesus would go and have meals with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes, and he would treat them with so much love and so much compassion and so much worth. But as soon as the Pharisees came, these religious elites, these people who thought they had it all figured out, who had studied the Bible, who had memorized passages, but they thought of themselves as better than other people. And Jesus found them offensive. He found them repulsive, and he stayed away from them. So this idea, this concept, it kind of makes sense here, right? But this is one of the beginning parts of what blew my mind this week as I was, as I was learning through this, because this, this makes sense. But we always have to ask ourselves when we come to a passage of Scripture, what was the original intent of the author? In this instance, what did Jesus, what was he trying to communicate to the people of Laodicea? And what we're about to check out is so interesting. This is where context is so important. It turns out that Jesus chose every single word in this letter to Laodicea on purpose, all right? So to understand this, first you've got to just kind of go back in your mind to history class. And I want to show you guys a picture of a Roman aqueduct. You guys remember seeing these in school? Rome, this is the empire that Laodicea is part of at this time in history. And Rome is famous for incredible engineering marvels. They created these aqueduct systems that would transport water all over the empire to all of their major cities, okay? And so this is really important because Laodicea was right next to this river, all right? But the river was murky. It was undrinkable. So that's not where they could draw their water from. So it just so happened that there were a couple of major cities nearby. One's called Hierapolis. And they were famous for having these hot springs, okay? And people knew about that. And then they would go to them and they believed that these hot springs were places of healing, places of soothing. If you were in pain or you needed to bathe or or any of this stuff, then you would go to the hot springs. You would see this hot water as something valuable and good. But there was another city called Colossae. And Colossae had crystal clear, super cold, very clean water. And you got to remember that we're talking about a people that are in a desert climate. So it's hot. And they're spending all day working and they're getting sweaty. And, and, and how amazing is it when you get that refreshing water in those instances and how good and how valuable is that in that moment? So they had these instances, they had these ideas, these concepts that hot water is good, it's valuable. Cold water is good and it's valuable. Now, Laodicea, because of where they were placed and because their water source was not good, they had this aqueduct system going, pulling water from five miles to the south. And the source of their water happened to be a hot springs. And so when they would get the water from this hot water and they would travel it, then imagine it going down a super gradual slope for five miles. By the time it arrived in the city of Laodicea, it was always lukewarm. They could not get hot water. They could not get cold water. It was lukewarm. And it, was, it had traveled a long distance. It was a little stale, a little stagnant. And that was the water that they got. And when Jesus said this to them, when he called them lukewarm, they knew exactly what he meant. This would have hit them right between the eyes. This would have been something they were not proud of. This would have been something they would have had a little bit of shame about because there was surrounding cities that were very proud of their water quality. And here's Laodicea. You know, this idea that both hot and cold water are useful, but theirs was lukewarm. It was stale. And basically the message here is that water is useless. It's good for nothing. Anybody have these Nalgenes? You guys have one of these? Have you ever filled it with water and then left it in your car on a hot summer day? 
it's, it's really, because it, so you leave it in the car and you put it in and it's, it's fresh and it's clean and then you let it warm up. And then if you ever make the mistake of opening it after it's been sitting there for a little while, something's happened, right? There's a change in the flavor and you get that moment, you just, go, you just want to spit it out. You want to get it out of your mouth. And heaven forbid, a couple weeks have gone by since you left that water there. And we all know there's a smell. Oh, it's the worst, right? And Jesus is saying this to these people is that you're not hot and useful. You're not cold and useful. You have become lukewarm. You have become useless. And when I drink you, it is so offensive, it's so repugnant that I need to spit it out. In the Greek, spit is literally the word vomit. What a horrible thing to be called by your king. And Jesus is saying that the Christians in Laodicea are just like their water. But it gets worse. He continues in Revelation 3. says, You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich. And white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness. And salve to put on your eyes so you can see. When I'd read this in the past, I thought, oh, okay, okay, I see like a parallel here. This is really interesting. But then this week, I'm learning about the history of the city, and it completely changes this passage. It turns out that Laodicea was famous for three things, okay? Number one, they were extraordinarily wealthy. They had this major banking center that people from all over the area would utilize. Number two, they mass-produced textiles, okay? They had this wool industry, and they produced clothing, and they took a lot of pride in being the wealthy clothed city in this region, right? That's something that they believed in and made them feel good about themselves. And they had a world-famous medical school that just so happened to specialize in an ointment for the eyes. See, they had taken so much pride in what they had built and in what they had accomplished, and they started to put their identity in these things. And when Jesus writes this letter to the church of Laodicea, he very on purpose hits them for all the things. You think you're rich? You think you're great at this stuff? No, you are poor, and you are blind, and you are naked. He tells them that they have put their value in these things that are earthly and worldly, and what they need to do is they need to come to him and purchase the things that have real worth. It's an incredible passage, what he's trying to say, and he's telling them, you've got it all wrong. You're so blind. You can't even see the corruption in your own hearts. So, what would bring Jesus to say this? What was it about this church that was so offensive to him. Again, we we turn to history and we find out that Laodicea could be also called the self-sufficient church, okay? They were known as incredibly independent and wealthy, right? And these people, they prided themselves on having everything under control, right? I don't need help from anybody. There's a really great example of this. In the year AD 60, which is about 20 years before the book of Revelation was written, there was this great earthquake that happened, and it obliterated Laodicea and the surrounding towns. Now, it's part of the Roman Empire, and Rome had this policy that whenever a natural disaster would happen, or these places were were war-torn or something, that they would send disaster relief. This was just part of being in the thing. It's the same as like what would happen now if there's a hurricane, right? The country mobilizes and does something about it. So their whole city just got wiped out, and all the surrounding ones, and then here comes the empire, ready to help, ready to rebuild, ready to make something happen, but Laodicea says, no thank you, we've got this. We're going to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, 
we've got this. This is not the only time in history we see this. If you look at like a, there's a span of 300 some years, multiple natural disasters, wars and all this stuff. And every time the empire would offer aid, they would say, nope, we're good. We don't need anything from anybody. We've got it under control. Even the name of the city is really interesting. The name Laodicea means people ruling. It's this concept that they really believed that we've got this under control. By our own power, by our own might, we've got this. So you've got this city that has this deeply rooted culture. And then over time, the church that was inside of it gave themselves over more and more, little by little, and embraced and absorbed the culture of the people around them. To the point that they would say, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. The scary thing is when a church starts to believe this and starts to embrace this concept, they don't think they need to be led by the Holy Spirit anymore. They've come to a point of self-sufficiency and self-reliance that they don't need a king, they don't need a savior, they don't need the Holy Spirit to guide and change and move. And the message here is that they are fooling themselves. They think they're so safe and so secure, but their foundation is crumbling and falling apart. They think that they're righteous and that they're holy in the eyes of God, that they've got it all figured out. Does this remind you of anybody? In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. I look at this passage and I just think, man, Jesus was so intense. Like, this is crazy. This is the same God. And I think of what Paul said on week one, this idea that we've maybe uh, adopted this idea of Jesus as Jesus is my friend. Jesus is my buddy. Jesus is that good, good father. All of that's true. But that we forget about the sides of him that are intense and powerful and strong. And it's all the same person. Yes, he's compassionate. Yes, he's loving. But he has absolutely no time for religious people that are completely okay with their own sin. It's this image that Jesus is the Lamb of God, but he's also the Lion of Judah. And I think all of us, when we look at Scripture, we need to look at the whole picture to get this idea of who our God is. Not just the friendly, nice stuff, but the whole entire picture of what he's trying to show us here. The church in Laodicea had become stale and useless, just like their lukewarm water. And so today, here we are 2,000 years later, we see all this context, all this stuff that's built up for this church back then. But the question now is, what is Jesus trying to say to us today? What's he trying to warn the churches of today and you and I as individuals? And I think what we need to do is it's time for us to have a heart check. It's time for us to look in the mirror and be really brutally honest with ourselves and look and ask, hey, has corruption found its way? Has it clawed into my heart? Have I made allowances for it? Have I, have I given it a place to root and to grow? And, and when we see that, when we're honest with that, that we would come to Jesus and say, Lord, forgive us. Help us to turn away from that garbage 
and to choose you. We need to look honestly. And so I've kind of got three things that are, are, are what Laodicea gave into. And we need to ask ourselves, are, are we doing this? Number one, they fell in love with the world around them. They started to buy the lies that the world offers. And all around us today, our world is telling us what it takes to be happy, what it takes to be satisfied, right? If you get enough money, if you get enough fame, if you get enough success, if you climb that ladder, if you find that perfect wife or that perfect husband and that perfect little family, then that's what's going to satisfy you. That's going to fill you up. That's going to give you the joy that you want. And as the church, we're called to be countercultural, to be in the world but not of it, Yet, if we're honest with ourselves, and I'm not just saying this to you guys, I think number one offender is right here. How much have I let the culture around me influence who I am? The jokes I find funny, the things I'm okay with watching on TV, the stuff that starts to pervade and take over. In James 4.4, he's warning the church, and he's pretty intense. He says, you adulterers. Don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? So we have to ask ourselves, have we fallen in love with the world? Are we more committed to it than we are to our king? And I just think of this reminder that this world is not our home. We don't actually belong here. We fool ourselves into thinking we do. But our home is with him. We're aliens here. So we have to ask ourselves these questions. Number two, have we become comfortable with our sin? Are we comfortable with it? Have we made peace with it? So what I mean by that is is maybe at first, when when you first started putting your faith in Jesus, right? There's this this fire and this passion, this excitement to, I'm going to follow him, I'm going to commit my life to him. And then as you do things, as as you slip up, as you stumble, as you give into a sin, there's this thing in you, right? This conscience that pings and says, oh, don't do that. No, what are you doing? Stop, stop, stop. And it's this wonderful gift of God that he puts in us to wake us up and to warn us. And so maybe at first it's like, oh, I shouldn't do that. And then, and then we do. And then we say, oh, forgive me. And then I shouldn't do that again. And then we do, right? Repeat, repeat, repeat. And then maybe at some point you stop thinking, well, maybe that sin's not that big of a deal. We all do this, you know? Maybe I'm going to say this one and this one and this one. I'm, I'm, I'm going to make peace with these sins. I'm going to push them over here. This is all good. You know what? I'm not going to murder anybody. So I'll keep that one over on this side. But these pet sins, these ones that I kind of hide in a closet and I don't tell anybody about, well, that's fine. Let's just leave them over there. And the Bible talks about this idea that over time, the more we push that aside, and, and, and as that conscience says, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, and every, every time we push it away and we say, be quiet, be quiet, be quiet, eventually it goes silent. And the Bible describes it as if, if you got a wound, right? Let's say you got a cut on your arm, and so you need to cauterize this thing. You're going to close this thing up. And I just imagine this, the, the language is, is intense. But it tells us that what can happen is our conscience can become seared. It's this image where you got a wound, someone heats up the metal, they hold it on the skin, it burns and all that stuff happens, right? And at first it hurts, but then the pain goes away because you just fried all your nerves and you remove the ability to feel. 
And that's the language that the Bible tells us is can happen to us. The more we push that voice down and we don't listen to it and we don't listen to it, eventually it becomes seared and you no longer hear anything telling you the difference between right and wrong. Have we become so comfortable with a certain set of sins? And number three, are we completely self-reliant? Just like the church in Laodicea. I've got this. I'm in control. I can do it myself. I am the master of my own destiny. I don't need anyone else to tell me how to live my life. Because here's reality. We are completely, 100% dependent on God every moment of every day, whether we realize it or not. We would not be here on this earth if he had not formed us and created us. And every day that we wake up and every breath we breathe and every beat of our heart is a gift from God. It's not by our own strength. It's not our own effort. He's literally giving that to us. And in the church, we want to see lives change. We want sermons and conversations and groups to make a difference in people's lives. But that doesn't happen by clever people and clever words It's only when the Holy Spirit moves in the heart of someone that they come from being dead to alive and they put their faith in Jesus. We are reliant on him 24-7 all the time. And as the church, if we lose sight of that, if we no longer rely on Jesus, then we have lost everything. And that's what happened in Laodicea. So, what do we do with this? This is a lot, and it's heavy, and if you're feeling a weight right now, so am I. And I think that was the intent. Jesus gave this warning for a very specific reason. If we continue this letter, Revelation 3, 19 through 20, he says this. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Let's just pause right there. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. And discipline. He's saying, even though this church has gone so far, has become so apathetic, that he still loves them, and he's still trying to get their attention, to wake them up, to call them to something. And, and we talk about God as a good father, right? We even had a song that we played maybe a few too many times called Good Good Father, that if I hear one more time, I'm just going to, I can't do it. <sighs> Curse of being on a worship team over and over and over again. But we call him the good father. And a really good dad, a really good dad doesn't, doesn't just give his kids stuff whenever they want it. He's not just fun all the time. A really good father, when his kids turn themselves toward wickedness, turn themselves away, a good father will correct them and will rebuke them and will discipline. And that's what Jesus is doing here to this church. So he says, be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person, and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If it feels harsh, if it feels like he was being intense, he did it on purpose. This was a wake-up call. He's trying to snap them awake so that they would hear, so that they would know, so that they would turn themselves to him. And, and, I, and I actually want to believe that that happened. There's historical evidence that this church continued long after this. 
there's a council of Laodicea that happened like midway through the 300s AD. And I like to think that when they heard this message and they were convicted and, and struck to the core of their hearts, that they did something with it. That they repented and they turned themselves to God. And so what do we do with this today? We have to do the same thing. The solution to self-sufficient, don't need help from anybody, this heart condition, the solution is that we need to surrender. We need to stop thinking we can do this by our own strength, by our own effort. This is the whole point of the gospel, is this idea that you and I, we could not fix this on our own. The state of our hearts, the state of our brokenness, we could not earn our way to heaven or earn God's, God's favor. That's why Jesus had to come down. That's why he lived that perfect life and suffered and died on that cross to take your place and to take my place because we couldn't do it for ourselves. And so what we're called to do is to come to him not thinking we're great, that we're impressive, that he should be amazed by us, but instead we come and we surrender and we get on our knees and we realize our condition and our situation and we just ask God, I need you. I need you to forgive me and I need you to change my heart. Help me to follow you to trust you. There's some of us in this room who've been following Christ for a long time. And that's beautiful. But something that can happen to us when this kind of all becomes the same and maybe it's become regular and routine and comfortable, sometimes we do start to slip in this mindset where we just see Jesus as our buddy, as our friend, as that good father, all true. But there's this other side of him, this magnificent, glorified lion. And the Bible says that he's supposed to be our Lord. This, this is a language we don't really use around here. We, we say, thank you, Lord Jesus, but do we, do we know what the word means? It's, it's, it's like coming to him as if, as if he's your master and, and bowing before him and realizing that he deserves your worship and your time and your affection and all of you. And so the question I have for every person in this room, whether whether you're just following Jesus for the first time or you've been with him for years, is, is he your Lord? And if he's not, then all of us, we just need to come to that place of surrender and say, okay, maybe I've been taking charge of my life. Maybe I've gotten too close to what Laodicea was and thinking I've got this on my own, I'm self-sufficient, I got this. Jesus, no more. I I want you to be in control. I want you to be in charge. Lord, here's my heart. Forgive me and help me to follow you and let you be the one in the driver's seat to let you control and lead us. So, I want to leave you with this idea. Don't wait. Don't wait to decide when Jesus gets your all when you're ready to fully commit, to go all in, to, to, to surrender and to, to let him be your king. Because there's not a single one of us in this room that is guaranteed tomorrow. We don't know. And I get to work with students in our church and I love it. And I think sometimes we get this mentality that maybe after high school or maybe after college, or let's go further than that, when I have the right job, when I have the right spouse, when I have the kids, maybe it's when the kids finally move out, Right? And we we think, when that comes, then Jesus, then you can have all of me. Then I'll do it. We don't know that that's going to be happening. We're not promised that. So we need to choose today. Who are we going to serve? 
Are we ready to let Jesus be our Lord and our master and our king? Or is the world too tempting? Is that the one you want? So I want to invite the worship team out. I've got some next steps for you guys. Number one and most important is just to surrender. To put your trust in Jesus Christ. For some of you, this is the first time in your life. For others, you can think of a time where you, were, where you did trust him, where you did believe in him, but over time, it became so comfortable and so normal, and he just lost that place of awe and admiration and in the rightful position he needed to be in. And so take time today, tonight, to say, all right, God, I'm all in. I want you. I want to know what it is like to follow you and let you be my king. Let him be the Lord of your life. Number two, we've got this awesome worship night coming up this next Friday. It's going to be happening this Friday at 7 o'clock p.m. I want to encourage you guys to come out. It's going to be powerful. And sometimes it's a beautiful place for us to come, and we don't even know what to say to God. We don't even know how we're going to confess our sins to God. But you get there, and you're in that atmosphere, and you're with brothers and sisters who are all reaching out to God, and that can be the environment that just helps set you free. Number three, get connected. If you feel that self-sufficient, I don't need help from anybody, I've got this, and you feel that inside of you, sometimes the best way to break that is to surround yourself with brothers and sisters who can call you out and who can encourage you and push you towards Jesus. We've got groups, we've got serving opportunities. These are amazing things that you guys can get plugged in with, and I want to encourage you to do that. We're going to pray, I'm going to close, and I just wanted to give an opportunity to anyone in this room who's listening to this and thinking, you know what? I haven't surrendered. I haven't given him my everything. I want to know what that's like. I'm just going to pray. And the words I'm going to say are not special. They're not magical. It's not like a get into heaven free card or anything like that. Jesus cares about your heart. But if you pray with me and you pray this prayer honestly, then I want you to know that we're here as your church. We want to help you walk and and grow and and experience God more and more. Let's just take that time seriously right now. Jesus, Lord, I thank you for this letter, this warning, this wake-up call that shows us how easy it is for us to slip, God, to lose focus, to turn our eyes to the things that are worthless and useless and will not give us life. Jesus, we acknowledge that we live in a culture, in a country that glorifies so many things and it's so easy for us to be tempted and drawn towards them. Lord, I pray right now that you would forgive us. Forgive us for the compromise, for the hypocrisy, for the corruption that we've allowed in ourselves. Jesus, help us to let you be our Lord, to be our king, to be the master. Lord, we want to we know what it is to follow you and trust you. Help us to turn away from our sin. And Lord, I pray for any person in this room right now who is putting their faith in you, and trusting in you, and believing that you've got their back. Lord, I pray that you would fill them with an incredible sense of peace, and joy, and wonder, and awe, that they are so loved by the king of the universe. And I pray, Lord, that they would not leave this room, and leave this building without telling somebody, somebody that can help them take that next step, to follow you, to trust you, to find community. Jesus, I thank you. We love you. Amen.